You are listening to the Intentionally International Podcast. I am the Reverend Matthew Lafferty. And I am the Reverend Anitra Kitts. We are two Americans living in Europe and involved with English-speaking congregations in non-English-speaking countries. This is the first of three episodes in our series with the Reverend David B. Smith. David is an ordained minister of Word and Sacrament in the Presbyterian Church USA. He is currently completing a Master of Arts degree in Ecumenical Studies at the University of Bonn. And as part of his graduate studies, David conducted a survey of English-speaking congregations in Europe and in Asia on their approaches, practices, and beliefs with children and youth ministries. David brings ministry experience with children and youth from other assignments prior to his relocation to Bonn, Germany. I am the Reverend Anitra Kitts. I am an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, and I am a freelance writer and occasional preacher in Munich, Germany. And I am the Reverend Matthew Lafferty. I'm an ordained pastor in the United Methodist Church. I currently serve as the director of the Methodist Ecumenical Office Rome and the Methodist representative to the Holy See. Prior to my assignment to Rome, I served nearly a decade in English-speaking international congregations in Europe. We think there is something interesting going on in these English-speaking international congregations, and we want to share what we've learned with you. So you survey 100 churches, you get 42 responses. Who are these churches? To start, I want to do the dangerous thing of, of applying some categories uh, to, to international church work. Not because I believe these are uh, dogmatic, well, dogmatic categories, but because I think when you engage in a topic in a scholarly way, you have to have categories with which to work. I will also say another caveat before saying this, the four categories I'm about to describe of international English-speaking Anglophone um, congregations are as diverse amongst each other as they are apart from each other. So that all that being said, all those qualifications added, uh, we can really identify sort of four basic types that, of course, interweave with one another. So one, of course, you're dealing with uh, historic congregations that are associated with a denomination in an Anglophone country. So, for example, with these congregations, you have uh, a prime example would be those that are associated with uh, the uh, International Presbytery of the Church of Scotland, for example, uh, International Anglican Congregations, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, uh, one congregation in particular that comes to mind is the English Reformed Church in Amsterdam that's associated with the um, with the Church of Scotland and has, has been in, in Amsterdam since the 1640s. Um, and so these are in some ways some of the oldest, um, oldest international uh, Anglophone congregations. And some of them, you know, you, you would think it, it's easy to think of this kind of ministry as sort of an American export when you do so from a specific context. But uh, to varying degrees, these congregations have been along, around for a long time. So that's sort of one group, and there's specific dynamics that are there. Um, congregational life in those congregations have changed just as much as in any other setting uh, in recent decades. But another cohort uh, that we really identified would be the one into which um, APC Bond might fall, uh, and that's uh, in intentionally interdenominational ecumenical congregations that were founded abroad by Ang uh, by representatives from Anglophone countries to meet the needs of a, a specific 
expatriate community. These congregations are tend to be a, a little more established in, in their communities than the so-called younger representatives. They oftentimes, at least historically, um, would draw pastors and ministry methods from mainline Protestant denominations uh, in the U.S. and in other contexts, but predominantly in the U.S. Uh, American Protestant Church in, or American Church in Paris, excuse me, which is, of course, its own unique phenomena, uh, is another example of uh, this kind of congregation. We have sort of a third category, which are those congregations, some folks might identify as younger, I, although that can be used pejoratively, so we have to be careful. And those are congregations that might be more likely to be associated with evangelical cohorts. But the thing that unites them to their previous siblings might be that they are, um, they tend to have been founded by Western missionaries in whatever the context they are in. And then, of course, we have another category that is significant, perhaps the most significant right now, in that they are growing, which is congregations that maybe don't come from a European background. Maybe uh, their members or their attendees uh, are from um, countries and, and traditions from around the world, but for, for various reasons, these communities have migrated together or members of these communities have migrated to Europe especially, but also to other parts of the world. And it's possible that uh, the English is not the first language of most of the people in these congregations, but English can serve as a common denominator uh, that unites uh, folks around sort of general cultural lines. Uh, and in my experience, this cohort tends to be less associated with traditional denominational boundaries, uh, less sort of inclined to talking about uh, being ecumenical uh, in the sense of we're going to bring people together from different Western Reformation tradition denominations. And like I said, you can think about these four categories and say, well, I can think of a million exceptions and how each one of them sort of weaves into each other. But I, I think that does help us uh, to start thinking about and asking the question, not only what does international church youth ministry, children's ministry look like, but also how might it look differently within the sect, you know, rather than saying, okay, so now we have done this survey and we have discovered uh, what international youth ministry and children's ministry needs to be, <laughs> um, because I don't know that that will get us uh, anywhere. Oh, second generation. Okay. You have populations that are divided in two. You've got people are coming in, staying for three to five years in the traditional transfer, executive transfer model. Uh, you have populations that are coming in and they're going, this is their new life. This is their new world. And they're going to stay put. They either have married someone who's local and they're raising a family within that marriage, or you've come in because um, home is no longer a viable option. So you have um, language issues right there. I mean, the, the, the population in the big room might be primarily English-speaking or at least primary first, second language is English-speaking, but the children may be more in the local language and how are people working with that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Certainly. So folks are engaging with that discussion and I will, I'll switch to be slightly anecdotal and speak to the, the congregation uh, at the American Protestant Church in Bonn, for example. So the youth ministry at APC Bonn is thriving uh, network of students. You know, we have about 40 young people who engage on a regular basis, and that's just in the sort of adolescent cohort. 
the children's ministry is also in a strong position, and the congregation puts a lot of emphasis on that. And so there we're seeing people, an added, uh, so you laid out, um, you know, that you have families who move to a new context for whatever reason, and then their children sort of are living between these these two worlds and may even be more enculturated, to use the older term, to their environment. But there's also, I think, in a lot of congregations, an additional piece that is, in my context, German families who, for whatever reason, have a connection to the English language and, in our case, the American style of worship. We hear that a lot. And and to the American style of youth ministry, right, uh, which I think is a misnomer, but is often the, the term that is used. And so we have this this complex mix at, at APC of, of people who are, in our context, German, who are from the country or at least have very deep connections to the, the country of residence, and then um, folks who have come in from for various reasons to that context living together. And I think that most congregations have not, at least in my experience and in, in the from based on the survey results, um, necessarily codified how they want to approach uh, those dynamics. But there is an attempt to be sensitive to sort of the broader language barriers that are present, but also the cultural realities that are present. Can you yeah. name me some of those cultural barriers? Yeah, so some specific ones might be involved with... so. In youth ministry, a big issue is how do you uh, engage in the moral and ethical formation of young people? And that is a significant question in international church ministry because of that mix I was talking about, because um, of, and of the other factors that are present as well. You might have someone who is comfortable with sort of the moral ethical code, the social code of the environment in which the church is situated. And so they would want to approach questions of how to shape the moral and spiritual life of young people in one way, whereas folks who are new to a cultural context and maybe have experienced a trauma of being pulled away from from their cultural home uh, might want their children to be educated differently. And so I think in in my way, in my experience, I think that the, the moral and ethical piece is foundational uh, to this discussion. But that said, at least in the language that was used in the survey, I think that most folks who cared enough to fill out a survey like this are more interested in questions of discipleship and how do we make the gospel relevant to the lives of young people, um, or perhaps a better way to say that would be expose young people to the relevance of the gospel to their lives across those cultural contexts. So I, I got a sense from the survey responses that there wasn't an extreme desire to engage in some of these divisive questions that could be taken as divisive because uh, there was a desire to say, okay, so we are living in this complicated situation. How then do we chart a path forward in a way that is faithful, regardless of, of the differences. So what, you, what I think you're trying to say, and I think it's a really interesting question at so many levels for these congregations, which is you want to do discipleship, which is to say you want to teach something, 
But what you're also saying is what you're observing is that these congregations aren't necessarily taking the time to figure out what they want to teach. What is our common um, curriculum or our common thing that we want to teach about being a Christian? And so you get into that potentially into an interesting question where you might have um, a spiritual intensely spiritualist tradition where you might have a, um, you need to be anointed in order to be healed, or um, you might want to do a tremendous amount of um, the Holy Spirit or even a uh, why do bad things happens kind of a question. And you're saying congregations are not engaging in that conversation not even among themselves, let alone what they want to, to, to teach to the next generation? So I would say I think congregations are engaging in the question of what do we want to pass down. I don't know, however, if there is an intra-ecclesial engagement, as we would say in ecumenics, and that, which means that there is conversa- that there are conversations between the various subgroups within the congregation about how to shape that. Um, because as, as I think we have, this could be, this could describe congregational life in general in many places, various aspects of the church's life. When a, when one group sort of, um, rises to prominence in that area of the church's life, the leadership almost becomes self-selective afterwards, if you're not careful. And so in, in, in some situations, I think we could say that, it's possible, and I don't want to universalize here, um, but it's possible that that there is sort of some entrenched, um, there, that there are some entrenched systems in place to say, well, this is what uh, Christian education and faith formation looks like at the International Church of blank and blank. And so I want to add to that another reality that sometimes, especially for the churches uh, that may have American in their title, right? So the American Protestant Church in Bonn, the American Church in Paris, American Church in The Hague, so on. Many people who, uh, I mentioned that cohort of, of uh, in my case, Germans, so people who are natives to the, the place, the context, seek out the worship life, the youth ministry life, the Christian formation approach of these churches because there, there is a sense that there is an American approach to doing A, B, C, and D. And that is more attractive in some cases uh, to the, the folks who self-select to take part in that work. And I, I, I don't want to add to the criticism, but I think with some of the, the phrases that I hear often from German worshipers at APC, it, it might be that, you know, I, I loved my Ikade, which is the national church uh, congregation and pastor, but I came here because I felt that I was spiritually engaged in a way that wasn't present elsewhere. And so I think that there, there is this intra-ecclesial discourse that maybe isn't happening. There is this self-selecting of groups, but there is also the phenomena of, at least in some cases where congregations are well-established in their communities, of people saying, I want my kids to go to that church to have this kind of formation that is already there. And uh, then I should add to all of that and just say that I think there is um, considerable variance in what we're saying. There are churches that are engaging in these questions, but I think that uh, for the most part, the level of engagement did not really come through 
in their responses, possibly because that might be a methodological question. To really get at how congregations are doing this, I don't know that you can put that in the survey uh, entirely. You might need to go and be in that congregation and, and watch it. There is another episode with David in our three-part series on children and youth ministry in English-speaking congregations in non-English-speaking countries. Thank you for listening to the Intentionally International podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, we would invite you to do so now. Give us a five-star rating, which helps others find this podcast. Visit our blog online at iipodcast.org. I'm the Reverend Anitra Kitts, and with the Reverend Matthew Lafferty, we create this podcast. First. First.